Well, shall we begin with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for allowing us to stop uh, all the hustle and bustle of this time of year and just come and rest and receive from you and hear about the work of your Son as we study through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this wonderful time of Christmas, understanding more about what it means for Jesus to become human as fully God and fully man, and how he came down so that we could spend eternity with you. And it's in your son's name we ask these things. Amen. So this week, we are discussing what it means for Jesus to be God's only begotten son. And then also looking at what it means that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So those are kind of the two main things we'll be talking about today. And then hopefully just talking a little bit about what grace actually is. Um, so the two points under what it means that he's holy and begotten, his only begotten son, is we're going to look at what it means to be fully God, and then what that term means, eternally begotten. Um, so whenever you, whenever you hear someone come out and say, like, that this person is my one and only, when this person is my only, my only son, you can tell that like, that term has an immense amount of affection tied to it. That that person, when, when someone says that's my one and only, it, it reveals something that's a unique relationship that's very special. And this is what the, the creed is ultimately saying when, when it's call, calling Jesus God's only begotten Son, which echoes back to John 1.18, John 3.16, and many other passages where we hear that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Um that this son enjoys the father's dearest love and that no one has this, this, this relationship that, he, that Jesus has with the father. And Jesus himself hears this father's words at his baptism when the heavens open up and, and we hear God the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Um, and uh, Norman brought up several weeks ago the the strange word begotten that oftentimes doesn't appear in many English translations of the Apostles' Creed. And I thought it would be good just to mention why I think that it should be in there and why we often say it with that. Um, so many English translations often take the Greek or Latin word, so there's the word that specifically... that is used in John, in John's Gospel, which is monogenes. And oftentimes, a lot of English translations just say only. Um, other, other times, they come from the, they use the Latin text, which uses the same, which uses a word that means only. Um, but the some of the earlier traditions, some of the earliest copies of the Apostles' Creed, possibly dating back to the second century, um, the Greek clearly has this one term, which is which should be translated "only begotten" and not just "only." So, so some of the best and earliest manuscripts have the Greek word, which should be "only begotten," and that's a direct reference to John. John's Gospel, who uses that, that exact word. So the Apostles' Creed is just taking it right out of the Bible and saying that Jesus is God's only begotten Son. And so, for what, for what it's worth, that kind of like, kind of trail, try to trail that down a little bit and see exactly why some English translations just have only. But it should, it should be only begotten. Um, so, first, what it means for Jesus to be fully God. So this, this phrase was put into the creed to really bolster the church's understanding that Jesus is fully God. That he's not only um, this man who came to earth, um, but that he was himself possessing God's divine nature. So this is still something that we constantly have to affirm and, and in many ways battle for because we're surrounded by different churches that are like the Unitarian church where they 
only say that Jesus was a, a divinely inspired man and he wasn't fully God, so that there's only one person in the Godhead. Um, also, a lot of the cults don't want to say that Jesus was God just as much as the Father was. A lot of the cults say that he was kind of like a super angel, like in Mormonism, that he's like the first and finest of all creatures, and they just call him God because it's just like, makes it sound nicer. Um, this, this creed is specifically saying that he's not a Gandhi. He's not a Buddha who's leading us to enlightenment to transcend this physical world and all its pains and sorrows, to transcend everything and find enlightenment and peace within us. Um, he's not just this first created being of all beings, like Jehovah's Witness want to say. Um, which in many ways echoes some of the early heresies that the church was trying to battle, uh, like Arianism. That was one heresy that this, this creed was helping battle against. There are Arians, which are ancient Jehovah's Witnesses, J-dubs. Um, Jesus remains God's only Son, and He's truly and fully God, just as the Father is. And we see that in all kinds of places throughout the Bible where where God says that it's His will that everyone would honor the Son just as they honor the Father in John 5. So God specifically says that in many places, like Isaiah 42, that the glory of God He's going to share with no one else. Like His supreme glory and His praise and worship, He doesn't share with anyone. So it's not like the Old Testament saints started like, you know, could worship angels and they could worship all these different things. You see a lot of places where the angels are saying, no, I'm, I am just a worshiping creature like you and don't worship me, I'm just a man, as the prophets would say. Um, but we see in the New Testament, God the Father specifically sharing his glory with the Son and that he deserves praise and worship just like he does. And we also see in many places in John like John 8, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That he's using that, if you remember back several weeks ago, when we talked about God the Father and the specific name that he revealed himself to be of Yahweh, I am who I am, Jesus has that on his lips. And, and one of the ways that we know what he means by that is, is, is by the certain reaction that he had. Do you remember from that passage how the Jews reacted when Jesus said, before Abraham I was, I am. If you think back to a long time ago when Pastor Rob was preaching through that, the Jews picked up stones to kill him. And because they knew that he was claiming to be equal with God. So their reaction was right if Jesus was not God. If Jesus was not fully God, they were right to try to stone him. Which... Later on, a lot of the Jewish, Jewish writings actually said that Jesus was crucified for blasphemy. A lot of the, the ancient hostile sources of the, of the second century all say that that's why they, they killed Jesus. So they all knew what he was saying. They all knew that he was claiming to be fully God, equal to the Father. Um, and Jesus himself talked this way, that he was saying that God is my Father and he's not just a son, but the Son. He is the only Son, the only begotten Son, who has this eternal relationship with the Father that's unique. And, but he comes down specifically as someone who is fully God to bring us into that relationship. Um, God is condescending to bring his creatures into his life. And we read that, that no one knows the Father except the Son and to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. So, from all that, we see that because Christ is eternal God, at, by his very nature, that he can then bring us into God's life. And he can come down, and by his grace, we are now children of God by adoption, children of God by his condescension to us. Um, that brings us to the second point why, why does it say eternally begotten? 
it almost sounds like there was a time when when if someone is begotten, it's like just like old very fashion old fashioned way of saying that you had someone as a child and that they were begotten and and but this is not what it's referring to. Like that's why it's like there's this an eternal begottenness that the later on we see um like in the Nicene Creed, it says he's begotten of his father before all worlds. He was begotten and not made. Um, all of this is to point out that because he's fully God, we're, we're just trying to describe the unique relationship then that he has to the father. So the question is like, okay, so he's God. He's equally God. But what actually makes him distinct from the father? If, if there's some kind of relationship, what do we say about that? And so that's ultimately what we're saying when we're saying that he's begotten. And then we kind of try to clarify that by saying he's eternally begotten. Uh, because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, have this unique relationship that um, each of them di- bring different, different person, personal properties to. So the you don't have to know this, but just as a distinction, the the Christian church said that there is a difference between God's divine, oh, bad. divine attributes, what they share as God, and then personal properties. Just for what it's worth, um, that they share in what it means to be God in their divine attributes, but each person. Um, has their own properties by which they relate to each other. So everything is from the Father and then eternally echoed forth by the Word, the Word of God, Christ, the Son, and everything is brought to completion by the Spirit. And so this is just trying to get get at that emphasis to say this is how they relate to each other eternally in that communion of love and fellowship forever. Um, And... The term begotten and only begotten isn't to make us think that there was a certain time when Jesus was not. That there was a time when he didn't exist. Um, And just to echo some of the things we talked about several weeks ago, that this kind of language is, is all wrapped up in mystery because God is so transcendent and so other and so above us that this is this is how God is revealing himself like we talked about uh, in the terms of baby talk. Like that mother who steps down to her child and tries to speak in a way that the child understands. So too God is revealing himself in this way using terms like begotten in order to reveal something of that eternal relationship that we couldn't understand otherwise. Does that make sense? Like, I mean, it's kind of it's a lot. Um, but... It's describing that unique relationship that has been who God is for eternity as three, as three persons. Um, that there's been this eternal dance that has been going on that each person brings something to the, to the dance that the other person doesn't have in their person. And together, they are God. They all share in that one... <laughs> They shall all share in those divine attributes and God's will and purpose. Um, that this is an eternal generation that's happening. That's part of God's unique glory. And just as a, as a summary of that, as we said last week, we have to remember that only God can give himself to us through God. That only God can fulfill the demands of God once they've been breached, once they've been you know, the, once sin comes into the picture, only God can, who is infinite, can, can infinitely fulfill the, the law that God has put into place. That no mere creature can do this, um, and only God can bring us to God. Um, and so, like, so this whole time, we, we can just say that, that we, we really are bumping up against mystery. We're bumping up against the fact that we're finite creatures trying to understand this miraculous thing called the Incarnation. And God's condescension to us is just, even though we see Him becoming man, it's just like it's still unfathomable. 
And that's okay. Like, we don't have to, like, perfectly get it and grasp it to know Jesus. Like, Jesus is constantly condescending to our weakness and constantly condescending to who we are. And we're never going to be able to perfectly get the puzzle all together because it's an infinite mystery. And that's okay. Um, But what what we do have to say is that Jesus, the Son of God, was one person with two natures. Like that's like, at the end of the day, the Son of God has human and divine nature, and he's fully human and fully divine. Um, and this is a mind, mind-blowing kind of miracle that this could happen. Um, and it's not necessary to speculate about it and, and just kind of try to get all hung up about it because it's really meant to evoke in us love and wonder and adoration and worship that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever. And that with this mystery, as we'll keep going on and seeing, God is coming down and sanctifying what it means to be human again. He's claiming humanity and he's purifying it and bringing it back to God's life. And that because this eternally begotten Son who is always at the Father's right hand, at his side, has come down to us. Now we can go up to him and we are brought into God's very side and we can come to him whenever we need to. And we, by God's grace, have been given the gift of God himself. Um, So that brings us to the second point of what it means that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And the two things that we talk about with this is his virgin conception and his human descent. Um, So the Bible is making this specific claim and the creed summarizing it that the Son of God entered and left the world by these amazing supernatural acts of power. He exited the world by this amazing resurrection and ascension that could not happen apart from God's power, but that he was also entering by a virgin birth. And now, nor technically, we want to say that it's the virgin conception. He was born just like we were. You know, like he, he was born in every single way that a human was born. Um... But specifically, the miracle is the human conception that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So people talk about the virgin birth as this kind of like umbrella term uh, that includes conception. We can, we can say that that just as equally is fine. But when people are really thinking about it, we're saying the virgin conception. Does that make sense? Um, that no man was involved in the conception of Jesus. And this fulfills all kinds of Old Testament anticipations and prophecies like we heard in Isaiah um, in Isaiah 7 and in Isaiah 53 that all these things are echoing this, this one main point that, that Jesus and salvation have to come by God's hand alone. Like no human hand could be part could in some sense activate salvation for us and bring salvation for us um, so th- these miracles kind of tell us the same message that they confirm that Jesus though he's not less than human that he was also more than human um, both of those things these fully human and fully divine are essential that he had an earthly life that was fully human, but he was also divine. He was the co-creator of the world, and he came from God and went to God. And the, the uh, early church appealed to this doctrine of the virgin birth, virgin conception, to show as a proof that Jesus was not just human, but he was also truly divine. And 
that was something that they were saying up against the whole ancient world. Like that, he, that Jesus wasn't just merely appearing human. That he just kind of was like a ghost that, that appeared and like apparated or just kind of like was beamed down by Scotty, you know, in Star Trek. Like they just kind of like appearing human but not really there. And he's just kind of this ghost or an angel. Um, but, you know, the ancient world had no problem with gods walking around, appearing hum- in human form. Like that was all over their literature. They expected that. Like when Paul and um, Apollo, or Paul and Cyrus, Silas, yeah, Paul and Silas go to a city and they have this miracle that happens. They, all, the whole city thinks that they're, they're Zeus and Apollo, you know, that they're, they're these gods that just made this appearance. So that in the ancient world, they didn't, they didn't have any problem with that happening. But they had a problem with gods actually becoming real humans and actually really dying. They just kind of appeared as human. They weren't really human. So what the Christian claim is saying was, was totally unique in the ancient world and that Jesus really was a human who was fully God. Um, and another thing that people often think about is like in terms of like why it had to be a virgin conception, why it had to be this born of the Virgin Mary. A lot of people think that it me- it, that's because of how sin and guilt are inherited. That some people are try try to think about it in terms of like um, that sin and guilt is set, is passed on through the man, and that so in order to be sinless, he had to be born in this way, um, and that being sinless was like obviously part of how he saved us. So that's kind of how some people have thought about it. I'm not sure entirely if that's accurate, and there's a lot of debate about whether or not that was necessary for Jesus to be sinless. But I think what is clear is that that God is saying, I have to do this um, because this is only something that I can do. Like salvation in this way is only something that I can do. Um, so there's just a lot of different theories out there about that, just so you're aware. But Jesus was coming down and he was mediating as this new Adam as his new and second Adam, and he had to come by God himself outside of the realm of sin and death. He had to come from the outside, from the heavens, and come into this world, and God alone could make that happen. Um, so that's kind of like, in brief, what, what people would think about when they talk about the virgin conception. Um, any questions or thoughts? I know that was a lot, but any thoughts about that? So basically, the, I mean, in, in sum, that, that, that is, the virgin conception is, is this ultimate miracle that happens. Uh, but secondly, we see that the human descent is really important, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that his humanity came from the specific Jewish girl in the first century. And uh, we see there's two different New Testament accounts of Jesus. We see the story in Matthew and in, and in Luke, if you're familiar with those stories. And we see these two different genealogies. Like it begins, the, they begin with these weird genealogies that often don't make sense to us. Like why would that even matter? You know, Jesus is God. He's coming. He's saving us. Who cares? about his great aunt and his uncle and his niece and nephew. You know what I mean? Like, why does that matter? Um, but these accounts, these gospel accounts are real history. They're giving us these eyewitness testimonies gleaned from real sources who could be verified and said, oh yeah, I know Martha and I know Elizabeth and I know the priest Simeon and I know this and I know that person. Um, did this really happen as Luke says? Did this happen as Matthew said? Um, they could be verified and denied. And that's what actually Luke is saying to do. He says this is a written account given so that you would believe. Because these things, as the Apostle Paul would say, like these things were not done in a corner. Everyone knew this was happening. All the way up to these Roman officials across the lands. They knew this was happening. This didn't happen in a corner. 
and stars were appearing and miraculous things were happening and wise men from the east were coming out of nowhere and they all saw these signs. So these are real historical things that the authors are trying to get to us that you can measure and verify in some sense. Um, but why these two genealogies? Uh, these two genealogies that we see are really echoing and putting forth God's son's human descent, like who he was descended from. And they're, they're telling us this great theological point um, that God had tied himself to human history through these promises that we talked about in last quarter. All these great covenants and all these great interventions in history where God is breaking in and he's giving a foreshadowing and a forecast of things to come. God is saying, I'm tying myself to you, Israel. I'm tying myself to you, Adam, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now David, like we heard last week in the sermon, um, he's tying his promises and his salvation to a specific bloodline and that he's going to bring about salvation through this back alley country of Palestine and Israel. And he's going to the lowly list of countries that was basically the refuse of the Roman Empire. Everyone hated the Jews, everyone hated Palestine, and it was constantly in warfare, and everyone battled over it. And they were full of rebels. And But God promised to come through this lowly nation to bless the world. And we see in Luke's genealogy that it's giving the line of Mary that... Um, the line of Mary is his physical descent going back to David. And then Matthew is showing much more of the royal line of succession through Joseph. So either way, either side of the family, he is a descendant of David by, by royal succession being the adopted son of, of, of Joseph and being the legal son of Joseph even though he wasn't the biological son. But then also through Mary, through his physical descent, they're both showing that he was coming from the line of David and he was this promised one that God had declared would come. So does that make sense? Like this is, this, his human descent is on display that he was born of this specific Virgin Mary. And... Um, I know it, 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 some people can get really hung up on this aspect of Christianity that Christianity kind of sounds ridiculous that, that this would even happen. Why would God choose for this to be how Jesus came into the world? And, I, and I, we talked about this a little bit before, but the pressure of what it means to live in a secular world where our beliefs are constantly contested and our beliefs are kind of on the table and we hear all these different claims of science and scientism and, and all secular critics saying, oh, that's just ridiculous. It's miraculous. It can't happen. Um, and maybe in our postmodern world, we hear you know, all these other pagan systems now being brought to the table too. Like, oh yeah, you can believe that. That's just kind of nice and cute. You guys believe in this miracle over there? That's cute. Um, but the Wiccans are welcome here too, and so but, you know, like everyone's welcome at the table, and um, but but at the end of the day, if we really do believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that there's something in this world, like if we just think about the existence of the world, if nothing existed at one time, nothing can exist. But the fact that there's something existing right now means it had a beginning point. And, and the miracle of God or something out there creating this world, if that is the reality, which we see all around us, it would make no difference. It, it would actually, you know, like, it would be no problem at all for God to have a virgin conception. If Jesus' resurrection happened, then the virgin conception and his virgin birth are no problem. Um, so it's kind of like one of those things where we have to take it as a whole package. Like a lot of people get caught up on this. A lot of liberal Christians and liberal, liberal critics kind of get caught up on this. But 
it's a package deal. You know, like if God created the world out of nothing, this really isn't that big of a problem. <laughs> it's just not, it's not a big deal. Um, God loves creating something out of nothing. And we see all throughout the Old Testament these wonderful miracles of people who are basically dead in their bodies having children. And so God, this is a, this is a constant thing throughout the history of Israel and God's people. Um, so that's what, that, I, I, we can take those kind of things seriously and get into a lot of the nitty-gritty of really defending this stuff, but at the end of the day, I think that that's what really matters, that if Jesus was resurrected, we believe the world was created, then the incarnation is no problem. Um, and I think it would be worth taking a second to talk about Mary, because I, I know that it can be really confusing with maybe Roman Catholic friends or family and how people view Mary, too, and, and especially this time of the year. So Mary was a virgin until the time after of Jesus' birth. I think the idea is like that, I'm sure, have you, how many of you heard of like the idea of Mary's perpetual virginity or her immaculate conception that she was sinless, born sinless? Um, if you have any Roman Catholic friends or family, that's, there's, there's a huge emphasis on Mary and they have statues to her and they pray to her and they have a rosary. So what, what is that all, what does that mean? Um, well, I mean, the gospel accounts that we have clearly do not portray any of those things. The gospel accounts show that Jesus had brothers and sisters, and it uses the term not just for like cousins and general family, but for real biological brothers and sisters in Mark 31 and Mark 6. And the, the creed is witnessing to the glory and the reality of the incarnation, not the glory of Mary. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has like developed this, this understanding of Mary over, over many centuries, and we can truly respect and, and revere Mary as we should, um, as, as, like the, as God said, like she's favored and been found honor with God. Um, but in her own words, she extols God as her personal Savior. She doesn't say, oh, I'm sinless, I was born in Immaculate Conception, so I don't need a Savior, which is what she should say. Um, she's not a co-redeemer, and she's like, oh yes, finally, my son's here to help me redeem the world. Um, no, she says that specifically, that my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, uh, at this announcement that the Messiah was coming through her. Um, and remember, like we said before earlier, that only God can bring us to God. No co-redeemer can do that. No mere human can do that. The real Mary um, of Scripture saw herself as a saved sinner just like us. And she was given this marvelous privilege that is written down for the world to know. And we need to follow her example and see what she did. Um, and ultimately, I think that a lot of times, just thinking about like in terms of like why people do this, I think a lot of people cling to Mary because she is seems more gracious. She seems more loving and compassionate compared to a legalistic God and and like a hard, stern Jesus who's coming whipping people and turning over tables and some of the things that he says and does. So I think a lot of the impulse that people have for Mary is because they fear God and they don't believe he's good. That in sending his son, that he's loving, that he's a caring father. And so, I mean, that, I mean, it makes sense. It's not biblical, but it makes sense. Like if they don't think God loves them, that they're going to look for someone who's like a mother kind of figure who's going to be tugging at Jesus' shoulder and be like, hey, you should give these people some, a, you know, a break and give them some medicine. You know, just like give them some grace. Um, but no, all, all of the virgin conception is underscoring is how bad every single human person is 
and how radical this nature of salvation has to be to save all of us. Um, and that what that grace actually is and what it took to save us. It took nothing less than this virgin conception, the only begotten Son, our Lord, to enter the world to save us. Does that make sense? I know I kind of briefly just went through that about Mary. Um, but I also thought it would be good just to take time to like, because that is very much a part of the, the world that we live in and, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about a lot of these things, to think about what grace actually is. Um, when we think about grace, it just kind of becomes this catch word. It's just like this word that we just talk about in salvation. Grace, salvation, incarnation, Jesus. And all those things just can become really nebulous as Christian like slogans kind of become. After a while, they they don't even have their uh, real meaning anymore. So a lot, of, a lot of Christians often think of grace as a kind of medicine, like that you're being injected into so that God is helping us to get over our sickness of sin. So after taking the medicine, we're able to do good works that kind of like earn us some favor with God. Um, but in reality, this understanding of the grace of God, understanding this whole understanding of the incar- incarnation of God himself giving us himself to save us and bring us back to his life. Um, Grace is actually not a medicine at all. Um, Martin Luther, after he was done translating a lot of the Psalms and Romans and looking at the original language and actually understanding like what was going on, he understood that grace is God, his disposition towards us, his favor towards us. So it's not something he's injecting into us to help us get on our feet and be a real boy. You know what I mean? Like it's not this little magic that's just going to conjure us up and make us better people. Um, No, God's grace is his declaring ungodly people to be righteous. That's his disposition towards us, that his, his favor is clothing us in his son. So grace is this manner, this whole thing of how God is giving us himself in Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. Um, a holy God declares people righteous. So in other words, we, we give Jesus our sin and our rags, and Jesus gives us his riches in this marvelous exchange of sin for holiness. Um, grace is God clothing us with Jesus. It's giving us his Son. It's giving us himself. And... So grace, according to the Bible, um, is God's forgiveness and salvation given to sinful humanity freely through Jesus Christ. Grace is not something that helps us look within to get the moral fiber and courage to go out and try harder, you know, and really see if God will be pleasing to us. And, you know, maybe I'll give another prayer to Mary to help me, you know, get in this. No, it's, it's we are looking outside of ourselves clinging to Jesus Christ through faith. And so in many ways, grace is a person. Um, Grace is God giving us himself in Jesus. It's not a medicine for sick people. Grace is God coming in human flesh to raise the dead. Grace is the incarnation showing us the desperate need that we have. Um that God has to do this from beginning to end. And he, just like he did in creation, he has to come and this Holy Spirit has to come upon the Virgin Mary and create something out of nothing. And that's the language it actually uses in the accounts. Like the the idea of hovering over and being over, it actually echoes back to Genesis 1. A lot of people don't realize that because that's kind of missed in our translation. But it's echoing back to the creation account of the Holy Spirit creating everything that the Father says through the Son. Um, Like so many other women in the Old Testament, like Sarah and others, God is loving to make something out of nothing by bringing about this Son and this child and sanctifying us and becoming like us in all things. And I hinted at this before, but but the... These things are connected. So the the 
understanding of grace like medicine and the need for Mary really comes from this understanding of God as being really harsh and a judging God rather than a loving mediator. Um, the, I think the medieval understanding of Jesus and what we even have today is that God is really distant and he's fearful and you just don't want to like get him on a bad hair day. You know what I mean? Like, and you just like, oh, I got to inch my way across the room and don't, don't wake him up. You know, like, and, but that's, but that's like, that's, that's just like always is on the back of our mind. Like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to wake him up, wake dad up. Um, we fear God and doubt that he's good at the end of the day. Um, and so a lot of people growing up in that context think that we need to receive forgiveness from the church or from Mary. And they both, Mary and Jesus are mediators between God and men. Or, because Mary had this role of intimacy. Um, but one of the things that we love about the creed and, and the ancient church and, and how the Reformation brought a lot of things back, they brought the f- focus back on Jesus Christ as this loving gift of a loving Father as our only mediator. So, neither the church nor Mary nor your own feelings can be this mediator between you and God. Um, but we can, which, which is great actually, it's actually super freeing when it's not on you or this church or an, another simple human being. Because it means that you can actually freely come to God and joyfully come to Him because Jesus sacrificed Himself on the altar of the cross as we'll get to in coming weeks. Um, that the incarnation means God with us. You know, Emmanuel is God with us. And so it's, it's, he wasn't joking when he's saying Emmanuel. He's not joking when he says that God is with us. Um, the, Jesus is this constant intercession for us that we can boldly go to the throne of grace whenever we have sorrow, whenever we have trouble in our lives. We can always wake him up, wake up God, our Father, in the middle of the night. So, this loving, fatherly relationship between God and believers is something that we have to like constantly be renewed in. We constantly have to be taught about, and we constantly have to be refreshed in, because that's the only way that we're actually going to start living. What do I mean by that? Um, if we're so caught up. And whether, wondering whether or not we're going to offend God and just constantly be on eggshells every single day, we're going to be worried about all the good works that we have to do or all the Hail Marys and the Rosary and all the things we have to get caught up in life in in order to appease God and honor Him. Um, but if that's already accomplished, we're actually freed for the first time to see, you know, like God has come down to be with us and he's freely given us this salvation and now he's fitting us and he's, and he's equipping us to then go out and serve our neighbors for the first time. Because we have that unconditional love of the Father, we can be free to give that to others. And in any aspect of our daily life and live for his glory, the glory of God alone and to love our neighbors because Christ became human, because he became one of us. Um, any questions or thoughts before I wrap up for the day? So the incarnation, this great, this great miracle of salvation is, is really how God likes to work. God, in some sense, loves to hide himself in this feeding trough um, because God, has to, God is coming down and identifying with us. He's experiencing all the difficulties that you and I experience. He humbled himself in this way, coming all the way down to us to become one of us and to suffer like we did and to really suffer every single temptation that's known to man 
and yet have victory over those things, to pay for our, our transgressions and failures and sin that we deserve. Um, and so God, in, in many ways, he's, he's not only revealing himself, as we said, with baby talk, but he's literally becoming a baby. He's literally condescending down to us and became an infant um, because it ultimately means that we have to just trust him um, and depend upon him for salvation. We can't meet God on this mountaintop of our good works where we think he should be. We can't you know, try to find him in a way that we think God is found. Um, no, he comes down to the very lowest because that's the only way that all of us are saved. That's the only way that any of us are saved is if he became the least and humbled himself to everything so that he could actually start dwelling in our midst again and being, a, being in a messy church with a bunch of messy people, with a bunch of poor and weak, foolhardy people like us, um, and we can actually just trust and rest in that because he's not found in the mountaintop of our good works. He's found where we're just down on, the, our, down on our luck at the bottom of the ring and we've been knocked out and there's nothing for us to do but just lay there. And that's where Jesus finds us. And that's what the incarnation, him being Emmanuel, is that, is that God is hiding himself in this weakness because that's the way he saves us. That's the only way he can save us. And that, that's so assuring because I mean God will hear each one of us no matter our situation, no matter the weaknesses that we experience or the sorrows that we go through. Um, that God is with us on this Christian journey across, across the sea in the desert of this, of this present evil age. Um, we're on this journey to our homeland that we can only barely see off in the distance. And Christ is that only boat that's going to bring us to the other side. And, and it just takes faith to make it to the end, just constantly resting in that boat. Um, but if anything, the incarnation tells us is that you know, one day faith will give way to sight. One day the journey ends and God will be no longer hidden in weakness but his glory will be revealed. And um, that's, that's what you, if you want to be a devout Christian, if you really want to be a devout Christian, just cling to Christ. That's what it means to be a devout Christian, to really have God's favor constantly upon you. Um, rest in that. Rest in Jesus, in his incarnation, what he did for us. Because he came here so that he could become for us what we could never become. To carry us along that sea until we are found in that home country where we won't need a boat and there won't be a sea to cross anymore. And that, that, is, that is the heart of what it means to celebrate Christmas. That this virgin conception that Christmas is telling us about that the, the hope of the world has come God's eternally begotten Son who is made flesh and the Spirit is bringing about the new creation as the angels start coming out of nowhere and they start declaring God's glory just as they were singing God's glory at the first creation. God's victory has come on the scene over Satan through this promised offspring. That's what Christmas is really about and that's why the Christian faith is a Christmas faith. Um, it's a glorious, wonderful story of angels singing peace on earth and goodwill to men. And I would like to just end with this amazing quote by the church father, Augustine, um, who just has such a great way of saying it about the incarnation. He says that man's maker was made man that the bread of life might be hungry, that the fountain may thirst, that the light of the world would sleep, that the way would be tired from the journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the judge of the living and the dead would be judged by mortal judges, that justice itself would be sentenced by the unjust, that the teacher would be beaten with whips, that the vine would be crowned with thorns,
that the foundation of the world would be suspended on wood and strength would be made weak, that the healer would be wounded and that life itself would die. He says, Wake up, O human being, for it was for you that God was made man. Rise up and realize that it was all for you. Eternal death would have awaited you had he not been born in time and never would you be freed from sinful flesh. Everlasting would be our misery had he not performed this wonderful act of mercy. And we would not have come to life had he not come to die our death. We would have perished had he not come. I think it's just a great way of summarizing like everything that we've been saying and like how amazing and wonderful the incarnation is. How wonderful God's grace is that God is giving us himself and his eternally begotten Son, our Lord, who's conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Um, any questions or thoughts before we pray? Any comments? I know that's a lot. Sorry. It's just like <laughs> a flood. Oh, let's close in a word of prayer then. Dear Heavenly Father, we are truly thankful for you in this Christmas season where we can really dwell on what it means that you are God with us. Um, even though you are, are, your Son is seated in the heavens, you've given us your Spirit, and you are guiding us along the sea of this life, and you're the boat that carries us to our homeland, and that we know because you came and, and you became human for us and were tempted in every way without sin, that you can uphold us even in the, the storms of this life, no matter what that, that means, that you're constantly putting your hand down like Peter and pulling us up out of the water until we reach that day when we will be on uh, the side of the promised land that, you've, oh, that you are giving to us and is waiting us in, in the heavens. And it's in your Son's name we ask. Amen.